should we actually expect there to be a thousand year uh, reign of a kingdom? You know, how, how should we think through that? Is that just a s- number of symbolism? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And, and theologically, the, the reason that that exegetical question becomes so significant theologically is this, is that if the thousand years are intended to be understood literally as a literal thousand year period of time, that would preclude the view of amillennialism. This is the Bible Sojourner, where we discuss issues related to the Bible, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd's Theological Seminary. Shalom and welcome. Thanks for joining. Welcome back to another episode of the Bible Sojourner. This is actually a part two episode of an interview I did with Matt Waymeyer of Expositors Seminary. And we're going to jump right into this. If you missed part one, you can view the link in the description and it's going to be good. Here we go. Now, you you did mention this, so I want to jump right on it and seize the moment, as it were. You mentioned uh-huh. the binding of Satan. So now this is something that, at least in my knowledge, there's there's essentially unanimous agreement among all-millennial and post-millennial interpreters that the binding of Satan has taken place already. All-millennial for their own reasons, but for post-millennial, uh, Satan has to be bound because Christ is reigning now and is expanding his kingdom over the world. And so... There's pretty much agreement uh, between most all-mill and post-mill interpreters that this has taken place. And so Revelation 20, if if we're going to take a futuristic perspective, says that that will take place. So how should we view this issue? And, you know, when does Satan become bound? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, as you, as you read, in fact, let me just go ahead and read verses 1 to 3. Um, John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So you have this this in verses one to three, the focus is, and really we maybe we ought to call it the incarceration of Satan or the imprisonment of Satan, because the key feature of this restriction of Satan is not simply that he's bound with the chain, but that he is in the, the abyss and the abyss is sealed over him. Okay. So what I would argue is as you read through this passage, what you have is a picture of a time period in which Satan, because he is not only bound, but cast into the abyss, which is then sealed over him, that Satan is completely cut off from any activity or any influence upon the earth whatsoever. So why does that become important to to, um, locating the timing of this thousand year period? Because that cannot be a, a present reality. Now, why do I say that? Well, as we, as we read through the New Testament and we ask the question, what does the New Testament tell us about the present day activity of Satan, his current activity and influence upon the earth? And, and I have just kind of a bullet point list. I won't give you the references, but many of these will sound familiar. What does the Bible, the New Testament tell us Satan is, is active doing during the present age? Tells us that he is the God of this age. He is the ruler of this world. 
He prowls about like a roaring lion. He tells lies. He tempts believers to sin. He disguises himself as an angel of light. He seeks to deceive the children of God. He snatches the gospel from unbelieving hearts. He takes advantage of unbelievers. He influences people to lie, holds unbelievers under his power, torments the servants of God, thwarts the progress of ministry, seeks to destroy the faith of believers, wages war against the church, traps and deceives unbelievers, holds unbelievers captive to do his will. And then 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he blinds the minds of the unbelieving to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Now, we understand that all of this is under the sovereignty of God, that he is that he is on a leash that God has sovereignly determined and that God is in control. But what we find is that rather than having this picture in which Satan during the present age is completely cut off from any activity or influence, he is very active, right? He's currently deceiving the nations. He blinds the minds of the unbelieving to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. So he's currently deceiving the nations of the world. But in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3, it says that that's the very thing that he won't be able to do. He'll be unable to deceive the nations of the world. Now, the amillennialist is going gonna, is gonna to listen to this argument and say, well, well hold on a minute. Um, the binding of Satan they will say, does not eliminate Satan's activities, uh, but rather just limits them to some extent. And so that what they would say is that Satan is both active on earth and imprisoned in the abyss. That would be the argument. Um, now, the problem with this argument um, has to do with the location of Satan's confinement, the abyss. Um, it, again, it's not simply that he's bound but that he's imprisoned in the abyss. What is the abyss? Well, the abyss we find in scripture, the Greek word is abusas. It's a, it's a prison for evil spirits. In fact, if you look down in verse seven, it's called just that, it's called a prison. And as we trace the Bible's teaching on this spirit prison, what we find is that when Satan or demons are confined in the abyss, they are prevented from having any kind of activity or influence on the earth. Um, you know, you think of maybe the classic passage in Luke chapter 8. You remember the, the demons, um, Jesus um, encounters the demon-possessed man. These demons are, they know who Jesus is. They plead with him not, not to command them to depart from this man into the, into the abyss. Don't send us to the abyss, but rather permit us to enter this, this uh, herd of nearby swine. And, and so why do they request that? Well, the reason for this request is that, is that in prison in the abyss, would have cut them off from having any kind of influence in this world, at least as long as they were in the abyss, whereas a departure into the swine would allow them to continue to, to roam free and wreak havoc upon the earth. Um, you see the same thing in, in Revelation chapter 9, where you have demons who are first must be released from the abyss in order to cause harm upon the earth. And then you find the same thing in, in Revelation 20, that in verse 7, Satan must first be released from his prisons before he can, quote, come out to deceive the nations. And so the indication in Scripture is that confinement in the abyss, again, cuts this, this demonic being, whether Satan or his demons, from having any kind of influence upon the earth. Now, what I found is that all millennials rarely give any attention to the abyss. Um, wouldn't that be a normal way for us to exegete this passage? Okay, if I, if I want to understand what does Revelation 20 teach, rather than 
quickly springboarding to other passages in the Gospels that will help me locate this 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 uh, binding of Satan at the first century ministry of Christ. What is the abyss? What does it mean to be confined to the abyss? What does it mean to be sealed in the abyss? And so I would argue that that amillennialists in, in their exegesis of Revelation 20 really need to give more attention um, to the abyss and, and the, the, the textual features of this passage in its context rather than using other passages um, to, to interpret it. Um, so, so again, well, and, and, and let me actually go back to something you said, and, and maybe you can shed some light on this, is, is I have been studying post-millennialism more than I ever have, but still haven't given it nearly the, the amount of attention that I've given to amillennialism. Seems to me that um, Kenneth Gentry, um, so some of the earlier, well, guys like Kenneth Gentry, in my reading of his presentation in the Three Views book, and then he just published a book maybe a year ago that I just read called, I think it's Postmillennialism Made Simple, seems to be sort of shies away from Revelation 20 and does not really emphasize its teaching. But in the Three Views book, it goes back quite a few years, he presented the binding of Satan as being a gradually increasing reality, which would sort of mirror that sort of gradualism of postmillennialism as the present age is becoming the millennial kingdom. And 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 so I would say in response to that, there's there's simply no indication in Revelation 20 that this binding is anything but something that happens punctiliarly, that it happens at a point in time. In fact, the indication is that Satan is bound for the entirety of the thousand years. It's not an increasing phenomenon, but it's something that happens at a point in time. Um, anyway, I don't. I, maybe yeah. I'm returning a question to you. If you, I don't know if you've read too much That's on a that. Dangerous, dangerous to return a question my way. Uh-oh. No, actually, so that is interesting. I can't. I couldn't remember um, what Kenneth Gentry had said on that. So I appreciate you saying that. I read the book, but it was I think like 20 years ago now, um, and I can't remember what he said. I know from studying some of the more. I don't know if they're. I mean, like the Jeff Durbin, Doug Wilson, kind of like, you know, neo-postmillennialism. I mean, they've they've definitely taken a new, uh, yeah, I just think it's more of a neo-postmillennialism than some of the classic postmillennial thought. But one of the things that they'll argue, in particular with Revelation 20, is that Satan is bound, but they'll make a big a big deal about the reference to bound to deceive the nations. So in other words, yeah. he can deceive individuals, but he can't deceive nations anymore. And I think that that's, uh, yeah, I, I think there's, there's a variety of ways you could respond to that. Even listing what you, you did with the activity that Satan is involved with, uh, I think kind of shows that he's very active among the nations. And of course, nations are made up of individuals. I think it's very difficult to really press that argument too yeah. far. Yeah. And I, and I would even respond to that by saying this is that because all millennials similarly will point to the purpose statement in verse three, and they will say, look, the binding of Satan was given for one purpose and one purpose only to prevent them from deceiving the nations. Therefore, he's free to go about in all of these other activities, to which I would respond to say very simply that that the the, the degree of Satan's restriction is is not determined by the purpose clause alone. I mean, it's certainly important, but by the location of his confinement. Uh, one writer used this analogy. He said, look, if you had a, a prisoner, someone in a prison who who was 
who who had murdered another prisoner and was put into solitary confinement to prevent him from murdering any other of his fellow prisoners. That doesn't mean he would then be free to steal from them and to beat them up and to harass them. The, the, the location of his confinement would indicate the degree of his restriction. And so that's why I think it's so critical to, to ask the question, what's the significance of, of Satan being confined specifically to the abyss? Now, I mean, think about that Luke 8 passage. Immediately, the, the demons say, don't command us to depart into the abyss. This was, this was a well-known spirit prison they were aware of. And, and so I think the amillennialists and the postmillennialists are going to have to be able to make a case that the abyss that is referenced in Luke 8 is not the same as the abyss in Revelation 20, or they're going to have a hard time uh, defending their interpretation of the binding of Satan. Um, because again, um, the, the the degree of restriction is indicated, certainly informed by the purpose clause, and there's reason, contextual reasons why that's emphasized, and, and a lot of them have to do with what's happening in, in chapters 12 through 19. Um, but the location of the confinement in the abyss is what indicates a complete removal of any satanic activity or influence upon the earth. Hmm. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. Let me ask you a follow up question to this because I'm not sure, I'm not sure all millennialists and post millennialists would agree necessarily on. I'm sure there's some some agreement uh, among some of the camps, but the the timing of when they view Satan as being bound, mm-hmm. are all millennialists essentially unanimous on viewing? Uh, is it the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ? Is that when the binding takes place? Uh, yes. Uh, yes. Some of them would go back to the temptation of Jesus. Okay. Some of them, you know, th- there would be different points, but for the most part, yes, the, I think the consensus would be it was through his redemptive work, his death and resurrection. Okay. And and the reason I ask that is because I know for post-millennialists, and so this is your raw thoughts on this, is I know a lot of them will put significant weight on 70 A.D., and saying that that's when the binding takes place. Uh, and so do you have any thoughts on that? Like, you know, why or why not that might be a, a good move on their part? Yeah, I, I don't know. I would have to, I would love to hear um, exegetical evidence for that assertion. Um, you know, I think it's a, let me just say this, is that I, you know, I am I am a pastor, I am a professor, I, um, giving myself largely to to shepherding young men, training them for pastoral ministry. Um, The caution I would give my students, and I don't presume to to speak to any teacher out there on the internet, but beware of escape hatches. (laughs) Uh, Beware of convenient explanations that help you preserve your theological system, but that do not emerge explicitly, exegetically from the text of Scripture. Now, I'm saying that not as a a massive rebuke to anyone who holds that view. I can't imagine what the exegetical evidence would be, but I can't comment on it because nothing comes to mind. But I would say, um, if, if, if one of your listeners is, 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 uh, leaning toward post-millennialism, 
beware of the easy solution of aha AD 70. Make sure the text requires that interpretation rather than it's an answer that allows you to preserve a system that you're committed to in a way that that hovers above the text of scripture and becomes the lens through which you read it. Now I say that as a safeguard for all of us. You know, I, I tell mm-hmm. my students all the time is that is that our exegesis determines our theology. Our theology must not determine our exegesis. And so we need to be driven exegetically, not driven by a theological system, not driven by a desire to preserve my theological view, not driven by a polemical desire to win a debate, but by a humble desire to come before the Word of God and understand what God has revealed in the pages of Scripture and be open to those places where I may need to be corrected or I may need to be refined in what I believe. Um, So I'm just speaking broadly there, but no, I've I've not heard that, and I I would be hard-pressed to think biblically, exegetically, how that would be defended. Yeah, and I don't think you will find a biblical argument for it. Usually what ends up happening, and I don't think every post mill holds this. I do think some are reverting to the crucifixion of Christ. The only problem, crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, the only problem with that as well is that you have a lot of these New Testament books that are written after the crucifixion of Christ, which are talking about Satan's involvement and the the world, how it's getting worse and worse. You know, godless men will come up from growing bad to worse. Second Peter 3 talks about. And so they have to, in order to espouse their positive viewpoint of things getting better, say, well, that was only for that time. But after 80, 70, things are going to be getting better. Yeah. And so it's a it's basically a presuppositional necessity, not an exegetical find. And yeah. so what ends up happening is, and again, I'm saying this in love to my postmillennial brothers and sisters, which there are some that listen to this, is that Josephus ends up being, you know, the 67th book of the Bible, as it were. And you're trying to find descriptions that sound in Josephus like what the Bible prophesied. And then you're trying to put two and two together, saying that just shows that all of this was done in 70 AD. And I'm not denying that that, that should be considered in evidence. I think it can be evidence. But the issue is, I think that presuppositionally we run into problems if we are relying so much on uh, Josephus's text to show how all of the biblical prophecies are fulfilled and Satan's binding was was in 70 AD because we find things that look like revelation in Josephus and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, it's just a caution to all of us to be, again, to be exegetical in our theology. To, you know, anytime I may be tempted to try to make a verse fit into my system or make it say something other than what it seems to clearly say, um, I'm, I'm not in a good place. I mean, I, I've told got my, my, my students at times, if, if you're ever reading a passage and you find yourself disappointed that the end of a certain verse ended the way it d- does because it doesn't support your system, um, you're not, your heart's not right before the text of Scripture. Oh, man, yeah, um, that's convicting. <laughs> oh, that's good, though. That's good. Well, I want to ask one more major issue here in Revelation 20, uh, and that's about the resurrections. I mean, this is probably, I don't know, this is probably one of the most disputed and essential te- parts of the text to get right. I think it was Riddlebarger that actually said that the issue of the resurrections in Revelation 20 is the most hotly disputed issue in all the Bible or something. 
Mm. Of course, everybody wants to say that about the you know passages they're writing about, but <laughs> but it is. I mean, this does get a lot of ink. I think even in the books that you wrote, you know, you have you know hefty sections on this this issue. So there are two resurrections mentioned in in Revelation twenty. Uh, how should we interpret this? I mean, specifically, um, how would an all millennialist or somebody who's not a futurist for Revelation want to interpret that? And then how would a premillennialist argue that we should understand those resurrections? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And actually, just as a, a quick footnote here, let me just direct your listeners. If you um, if you Google my name, well, let me say this. I, I wrote a couple of journal articles for the Master Seminary Journal, one on the binding of Satan and one on the first resurrection um, and go into both. I mean, those are the two key exegetical issues in Revelation 20 that speak to the debate. And so you can find those online. I'm sure if you Google my name and just I'll, a try, title. I'll try to actually drop a link in the description so they can just click on it. Uh, okay. Underneath. Yeah, great. So that would give you, you know, much more insight into these issues. But, but yeah, so, so the first resurrection in Revelation 20, you know, as you mentioned, what you have is, is this vision in, in which John sees thrones, sees people sitting on them, judgment given to them. And then in verse four, he says, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. Here's the key phrase, they came to life. Okay, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So they came to life. Now, later, John's going to put a label that as the first resurrection. Okay. They came to life and reigned for a thousand years. And then it says in verse five, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And so the premillennialist is going to read this and say that for all the debate, and all of the ascription of controversial passage to, to this text, a straightforward reading, what you would have are two physical resurrections separated by a thousand years. They came to life and reigned for a thousand years. The rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were completed. So you have two resurrections. You have the resurrection of the righteous at the, at the second coming of Christ, the first resurrection, and you have the resurrection of the wicked a thousand years later. The rest of the dead didn't come to life until after the thousand years. So the question is, what about this first resurrection? Um, the question really centers around the question of the nature of the resurrection. The premillennialist would say this is a physical resurrection. You have two physical resurrections separated by a thousand years. The amillennialist can't accept that because it, it, it that does not fit with amillennialism. And most postmillennialists take the same kind of viewpoint too, yeah, right? Yeah, most postmillennialists. Yeah. Um, yeah, in fact, Gentry would, yeah, I'll, I'll get to Gentry's view in a moment. So so they would look at it not as a physical resurrection, but as a as a spiritual resurrection. Now, before I get to the how exactly they would explain it, let me just pause for a moment and say, now why would I say it's so clear that what we have here is a physical resurrection? Well, I would start with the very use of the word resurrection itself. Uh, it's a very common word in the New Testament. Anastasis is the Greek word. What you find is if you trace this, this term out throughout the New Testament, it's used 39 other times outside of Revelation 20, 38 
of those other 39 times, it refers to a physical resurrection. Now, the only exception is Luke 2.34. It's used metaphorically there. It's very clear. Uh, physical death is completely absent from the context. It can't be a physical resurrection. But 38 out of 39 times, anastasis, resurrection, is a physical coming to life. One who is physically dead physically comes to life. And so the reader of this passage sees anastasis, sees resurrection immediately, the concept that is conveyed to him or her is the idea of physical resurrection, which I would say, at the very least, places a heavy, heavy burden of proof on someone who would say it means something else. Okay, so the use of the word itself. Well, now let's think about how it's used in this context. Um, you think about the identity of those who are resurrected. Well, if you look at the simple progress of what's described, what you have is they were martyred, so they were physically killed, they came to life, and this coming to life is described as a resurrection. So they have new life, this life is physical. So again, they're killed, they come to life. What is this? It's a resurrection. What does resurrection mean? A physical coming to life. And so the very identity of those who are resurrected as set forth in the text I think it's very difficult to argue it's anything other than a physical resurrection. Second, what I would say contextually would be the way that the resurrection's described. So this, this idea, they came to life. What we have there in verses four and five is the same form of the same verb translated the same way they came to life in verses four and five, describing both the resurrection at the second coming and the resurrection of the rest of the dead a thousand years later. First resurrection says they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years in verse four. Second resurrection, the rest of the dead did not come to life as a son, aorist active indicative third plural of zao, same term, they did not come to life until the thousand years are completed. And then in fact, if you read on after the thousand years, we get to verse 13, the rest of the dead, the sea and the grave gave up the dead which were in it. They were resurrected. So you see that second resurrection. And so the use of the word resurrection, the identity of those resurrected, the description of the resurrection itself, they came to life. Um, I would say nearly impossible to see it as anything other than a physical resurrection. Now that then raises the view, well, how does the amillennialist or how do some postmillennialists like Kenneth Gentry in this case, view the first resurrection. Well, we said spiritual, but what is what exactly do they mean? Now, let me just, I'm going to keep it simple just for the sake of time. There are different nuances and ways that it's, it's um, understood. One of the most popular views would be that the first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection that refers to regeneration. Okay. The first resurrection is the regeneration of the believer at the point of conversion. So why would they say that? Well, if you, if you look at the doctrine of regeneration, it's often described as the as a, as a rising from the dead in the spiritual realm, right? Uh, Ephesians 2, Colossians 2, 1 John 3, um, those who are dead in their sin are made alive. They're resurrected. So there's a, a spiritual resurrection. Now, what's the problem with this view? Well, first of all, I'll just remind you the word resurrection never refers to regeneration in the New Testament. So I would start there. I suppose the response could be, well, couldn't this be a unique metaphor that John's using? 
yeah, I, I think that's fair. That's that's possible. It's possible that John is seizing upon this spiritual resurrection idea and using the word resurrection metaphorically. But the problem and the reason that this view is utterly impossible, and I'm not given to hyperbole, but the reason that this view is impossible is that according to this view, if you read this passage, what this view requires is this. This view requires that the saints in verse 4 are not regenerated until after they are martyred for their faith in Christ. So they're not spiritually reborn until they after they physically die. And so this view becomes an utter impossibility. Uh, this was pointed out. Uh, when did Alva J. McLean write The Greatness of the Kingdom? Is that in the oh, 50s? Oh, I can't remember. Yeah, 1950s or 60s, yeah. Uh, McLean points this out decades ago. Um, I've not seen an amillennialist or a postmillennialist who holds the regeneration view give an adequate response. Most of them ignore this entirely. Um, but it becomes impossible to take this concept and read it into the text and then reread the text and end up with anything but utter absurdity. Um, yeah, so there, I mean, there are other reasons as well, but I mean, that's maybe the, the simplest way to state it. Oh, that's that's clarifying. And I think you've convinced me to, uh, you know, abandon such uh, views for regeneration. And uh, now I guess as a follow-up to that, one of the things that I think you mentioned that there are a variety of different shades of that of that uh, spiritualizing the resurrection and, and how how all that works. Um, one of the things I, I just want to get your take on this because I just came across this different view. I don't know if you've you've seen it before, uh, but just because I've been studying postmillennialism uh, and tracking what some different people are arguing. I would say most postmillennialists are going to argue hand in hand with all millennialists on the spirituality of that resurrection. But I just came across within the last couple months uh, a view by a postmillennialist whose name is Philip Kaiser. And I don't know if you've heard his name before, but I, I hadn't really heard of him much before. But he's, you know, heralded as one of uh, one of the articulate spokespersons for postmillennialism. A lot of people really like his teaching and. And one of the things that he teaches with regard to Revelation 20, and in his his sermons and you know material on this, he basically says, you know, the premillennialists have a really good point. You have to treat you know both the first resurrection, second resurrection as being physical resurrections. I mean, and that's you could have. I know you could have gone into a lot more detail, but you know we don't have unlimited time on you know the connections between the resurrections, how they have to be the same, and all of those different things. But one of the things that Kaiser pointed out, or he argued, was that, and this isn't Walt Kaiser, this is Philip Kaiser, it's spelled K-A-Y-S-E-R, so different than Walt Kaiser, who's, you know, uh, and I, I think that's how you say his name, but he he would argue that they are both physical resurrections, but the first resurrection is what takes place, he thinks, in 70 AD. Going back again to the importance of 70 AD, he thinks that this is talking about some sort of resurrection that we have taking place in 70 AD. And then uh, now, we, now we're in the millennium. And then later at the end, we will see another resurrection. So I don't know if you've heard that before. So this is kind of, don't mean to spring this on you. I just know it's on people's minds because postmillennialism is trying to, you know, 
give adequate answers to these things. And so uh, have you heard that view before? Any thoughts on that? No, I'm, I'm not familiar with that. Um, I would say my initial thoughts would be to ask if someone held that view to ask a whole lot of questions. Um, who exactly? Well, I, I mean, I, I would start here. Where in the Bible is that taught? Right. Um, and my follow up questions would probably depend on how that question was answered. Um, you know, I, I where where do we see a physical resurrection of those who are martyred for their faith in Christ? Um, and what does it mean that those individuals have been resurrected and reign with Christ? Um, in other words, take the view and return back to this passage in, I mean, I call it test driving. Oftentimes when I'm teaching Greek or I'm teaching theology and and, and someone, anything from they're, they're making a, an exegetical decision about uh, a grammatical feature of the text in Greek class or a theological um, interpretation is is test drive it. Take, take the view and return to the text and pretend that's what the text means and see if there are any consistencies, see if it works, see how it test drives. Um, so yeah, I, do, do you know, do you remember, if, is there somewhere else in scripture where he would point to a physical resurrection of those who were then reign with Christ? Not that, not that I saw his big argument was that other people throughout church history have argued that there were multiple resurrections in 30 or 33 AD. And then he also would extend some of those comments to, they may have been arguing that there was resurrections at 70 AD during that time as well. So it was pretty lacking in exegetical. I think it's, it's, at least my understanding of it is, like you said, I appreciate how you wanted to ask questions to clarify that because I think that's important. Mm. But my understanding in looking at it is that exegetically, it's it's really lacking. It's more of a okay, we have to if the yeah. if these are two real resurrections, we have to somehow work it into a postmillennial viewpoint, and maybe this is the way to do it. Kind of presuppositions driving exegesis. Yeah. Well, and I would say this is. I often tell my students in these contexts that when you're dealing with a polemical issue where there's controversy, there are differing views, there's debate, is that sometimes what you find yourself doing when you land on a position is landing on the position that leaves you with the least number of unanswered questions or the least amount of tension. Okay. Um, in other words, sometimes we affirm a view and we're still wrestling with some questions over here. Um, a lot of times we even have answers to the questions, but we're not 100% satisfied with the answer that we have. And so we continue to study. And so I would say we need to be careful. Well, we need to be perfectly willing to say, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. um, now, I think rather than, I don't know, I mean, I, I don't want this to sound disrespectful. That sounds to me like something that was just made up out of thin air. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we see in we see some physical resurrections in Matthew twenty-seven. I thought maybe I, that was the closest I could come to, but that's obviously right. not AD seventy. But to to then say, well, maybe I mean, it's sort of like saying maybe this happened, and this is what that's referring to. 
Um, here, here's a prophecy that taken at face value, physical resurrection would seem to indicate something that happens in the future. But my theological system says, no, all of this has already taken place. Well, maybe this already took place without any exegetical basis for making that claim. If I were a post-millennialist, I would just be much more comfortable saying, I don't know. Than, than, than holding that, that up as my answer to that, that question or that, my, that is the way to relieve that tension. Yeah, and I don't mean to, um, I hope listeners don't think I'm saying all post-millennialists believe that because I think the majority are going to be in agreement with the amillennialists on trying to make some sort of difference between the first and second resurrections yeah. instead, of, instead of going this route. In, in one sense, I can appreciate the effort because there's a recognition that there's a problem. But at the same time, I think, like you're saying, and I agree with you completely, it's it's difficult to try to put so much weight on 70 AD when there's no evidence, biblically speaking, that, and in my knowledge, I mean, I mean, maybe I'm wrong on this. I don't think Josephus talks about resurrections happening during 70 AD. I mean, I could be wrong. Uh, but even then, like, is Josephus inerrant? I mean, that's that's the question. But when we when we examine those issues, though, I think it's it's definitely a minority view. Um, so I don't think anyone listening to this probably believes that. But I, you know, just trying to be exhaustive in thinking through those issues. Maybe I'll return to a to make it more profitable. Return to one thing that Gentry said, and maybe you can give me your comments on this. Uh, Gentry, and I think other people have used the same kind of argument when he's talking about the resurrections. He looks at scripture and says, hey, when we look at how John talks about the resurrection, we look at how Daniel talks about the resurrection, we see the scripture writers talk about one resurrection. So, you know, why would we expect then that there would be multiple resurrections talked about in a symbolic book like Revelation? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the, the passages that Gentry is referring to would be Daniel 12, 2, uh, John chapter 5, I think it's Acts chapter 24, where if you were to read just those verses without any other um, passage in Scripture, you, you might you might assume that the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked take place at the same time. And what I would appeal to to, to harmonize all of Scripture is, is something that is often referred to as prophetic perspective or prophetic foreshortening. Um, and this isn't this isn't some sort of hermeneutical trick that was invented by the dispensationalists to to preserve their system. If you read uh, in in my class, I actually quote Kim Riddlebarger and and use his definitions, and I actually even use his illustration. Um, Kim Riddlebarger, a millennialist, says you know he's he lives in Southern California. He's describing looking out his window at these these two mountain ranges, and he says if I look at these two mountains. Um, from from a distance, the two of them appear to be side by side. But if you were to drive closer, what you would find over time, as you got closer to them, that there's actually a, a, a geographical distance between them so that the one is a lot closer. And so what he, he talks about, again, prophetic foreshortening, prophetic perspective, what is sometimes presented in the Old Testament, Daniel 12, 2, side by side appears to be happening at the same time, when we come into the New Testament with greater clarity, what we find is there's actually a significant gap of time that separates those two events. And there's multitudes of Old Testament examples that um, 
ah mills, post mills, and pre mills would all agree with. And right. so my response to that, what, what I think is that, you know, it's the argument of the general resurrection is that what, when you come to Revelation 20, you see, yes, there will be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, same order as what we see presented in those other three texts, but that there's a gap of time that separates the two. I think that's the only way to, to harmonize all that scripture teaches and to not do violence to any of the passages and actually to appeal to a well-known um, um, hermeneutical principle of understanding that the prophet's perspective many times was to see things on the can the prophetic canvas side by side and 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 later in the new testament see there's actually a significant gap of time separating the two yeah and i think that that makes sense with regard to the principle of progressive revelation you would expect mm -hmm. after you have a framework given to then have more detail and to use you know paul's terminology mystery, you know, you have mystery revealed, you have things filled in that we didn't know about. And it's not changing the definitions or changing the realities. It's just filling in the gaps or coloring yeah. in the lines so that we have, you know, HD detail instead of yeah. just black and white. Well, I think that's such a such an important point, Peter, is we're not saying that the New Testament changes the meaning of Old Testament prophecy. And that's an important point because you do have some in the millennial camp who would use that kind of terminology of reinterpretation, that the, the New Testament, in effect, ascribes to an Old Testament passage, meaning that it didn't hold in the Old Testament context alone. It reinterprets it. And so the the uh, I'm just going to think out loud a little bit. There's a difference between saying... There's a, let me say it this way. If, if the Old Testament prophesies A, C, and E, there's a difference between saying when we come to the New Testament, B and D are filled in as events that also happen between A and C and between C and E. That's not changing the meaning of A, C, and E. That's bringing greater clarity by... by, by um, setting forth events that take place during gaps of time that weren't clear. The, the problem, I believe, hermeneutically comes when you move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, when you interpret A, C, and E as meaning something other than what their contextual meaning as originally given in the Old Testament was, so that there's a right. reinterpretation, there's a change of the meaning. Um, so, so I think that's an important distinction. I, I've been thinking about that, haven't haven't written on that. I'm kind of talking, you know, here and there in the classroom trying to talk myself clear on it. But I think that's a really important distinction. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's 100% correct. And I think that how you, even that illustration, um, painting it out that way, I think is really, really helpful. Well, I know, you know, I've kept you so long already, but I just got one, one final question because it's important. And I only get you on here, you know, every so often. So I want to make sure I uh, you know, utilize you till you're exhausted and then you drop. So <laughs> talk us through the thousand years, because a lot of times people say, okay, the thousand years, it's got to be symbolic. Why would you take that as a literal 1000 year calendar time period? Yeah. I, I, I think that's a, it's a fair question. We want to, we want to, you know, have a reason for why we do what we do. Should we actually expect there to be in a thousand year uh, reign of a kingdom, you know, how, how should we think through that? Is that just a s number of symbolism? 
Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And, and theologically, the, the reason that that exegetical question becomes so significant theologically is this, is that if the thousand years are intended to be understood literally as a literal thousand year period of time, that would preclude the view of amillennialism. Because again, remember the millennium is seen to be the present age between the first and the second coming, which is twice that length and growing, right? Mm -hmm. um, the post-millennialist is able to escape that tension to say, well, when does the thousand years actually start? So, you know, there's a little bit of ambiguity with post-millennialism, but, but that's theologically why it becomes an important issue. But, but exegetically, um, what do we do with this, this number? It's, it's a large number. It's a round number. Um, you know, obviously hermeneutics um, becomes foundational to this question. When you read premillennialists and you read amillennialists, particularly as they approach the book of Revelation, you'll you'll find diametrically opposed approaches. Uh, the premillennialist will say, we must assume the language is literal unless there's compelling reason to take it symbolically. Whereas the amill or the postmill in this case would say, no, it's just the opposite. And especially in the book of Revelation, we must assume the language is symbolic unless there's compelling reason to take it literally. There's clear statements on both sides saying, this is the way we approach it. And as I've studied it, I thought, well, no wonder they land on, on different places. Um, so how do we maybe bridge the gap and come together and, 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 and talk about this question in a way where there's some common ground? Well, let me say something that I don't think should be controversial, that I think is important. And that is this, I come to a passage in the book of Revelation, okay? The presence of symbolism somewhere in that passage isn't sufficient to prove that everything in that passage is symbolic. Okay? Again, mm -hmm. here's a passage, a bunch of different elements in the passage. To, to point out one element that's symbolic is not sufficient to prove that every other element is symbolic. Right. Now, why do I say it? I think we'd all agree, but... I can't tell you how many times I've heard an amillennial say, and sort of tongue-in-cheek rolling their eyes at, at, at the simpleton kind of approach of, of the premillennials, well, if the chain isn't literal, why would we think that thousand years could be right. literal? It's not an iron chain, is it? Then why don't you give up the literal thousand years? That's that's kind of the the, the argument. Um, I mean, I would point I would point to Revelation twenty verses one to three, and I would say, look, there are there are several elements that I think we'll all agree that are literal. Um, the the angel, heaven, Satan, the deception, the nations, uh, short time. I mean, these are all intended to be literal. They're not symbolic to mean something else. Those elements mean what they say. So, so. so the point would be this, even in a book with as much symbolism as Revelation, both sides would agree that there are some elements are literal and some are symbolic. It's not all or nothing. Um, you know, the, the, the simple kind of analogy I sometimes use is if, if we hear the phrase, it, someone says, it's raining cats and dogs outside. If we take an all or nothing approach, we're going to misinterpret it. Uh, well, it's not it, it's 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 literally raining. I'm going to be an all-in. I'm a literalist. It, it it's literally raining, and literal cats and dogs must be falling from the sky, because I'm all or nothing, and I'm a literalist. The other all or nothing guy is a symbolicist, and he says, well, since it's not 
literally raining cats. It's not literal cats and dogs. It must not be raining at all. And therefore, the rain is symbolic of a season of melancholy that came over, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, right. when a person says it's raining cats and dogs, the cats and dogs is symbolic, the rain is literal. And the point is this, is we need to take it on a case-by-case basis. And all of this is designed to highlight is this, we need some well-thought-through criteria to bring to the text to ask the question, is this intended to be taken literally or symbolically? So as I've thought through it, and ask the question, what what kinds of criteria would be helpful? What And this really gets to the characteristics of symbolic language. Is I've, in my writing, I've come up with three questions. And and by the way, these aren't particularly controversial. If you, if you read in G.K. Beale's commentary, well-known amillennialist on Revelations, the go-to text for Revelation for amillennials, if you read in his introduction, he gives a list of criteria to identify symbolic language very similar to mine. In fact, when I'm in class, I use his. I say, let's use his and apply it to the thousand years. But but here's mine, is I ask three questions. Uh, three questions for identifying symbolic language. First of all, does it possess a degree of absurdity when taken literally? What do I mean? Well, language that's intended to be taken symbolically when you take it literally, when you misunderstand it and interpret it literally, there's some absurdity. It, it, it causes the interpreter to scratch his head and say, but but how can this be? How how can cats and dogs literally be raining from the sky, right? So does it possess a degree of absurdity when taken literally? Secondly, does it possess a degree of clarity when taken symbolically? In other words, when I identify the absurdity of an literal interpretation, say, well, maybe it's symbolic, aha, there's clarity, because symbolic language isn't meant to be impossible to understand. It's meant to be very vivid in its expression and and then that way easy to understand. And so symbolic language interpreted symbolically brings clarity, brings this aha, that's what it means. It was absurd when taken literally. It makes sense when taken symbolically. And then thirdly, does it fall into an established category of symbolic language. When we come to figures of speech, they're well-known, they're well-defined, there are examples in Scripture. Um, and, and so, you know, and here's a simple example I use. is uh, it's Isaiah 55, 12. Uh, it's the prophecy where, where the, the trees of the field will clap their hands. The, the, the time of the return from exile. Three questions. Trees of the field clapping their hands. Does it possess a degree of absurdity when taken literally? Well, yes, because trees don't have hands, right? Does it possess a degree of clarity when taken symbolically? Well, yes, it's it's very clearly expressing that this, this is going to be a time of such joy that if it were possible, even the trees would be celebrating, right? And then thirdly, does it fall into an established category of symbolic language? Absolutely. It's what we call personification. It's the, it's the ascribing of human attributes to an inanimate object, the clapping of hands. And so so that would be an easy example. Now, why do I give this long, lengthy setup to the thousand years? As I wrestled with this question, and by the way, when I first wrestled with the exegesis of Revelation 20, I probably, I was very open to, you know, it's a thousand years, it's a round number. Maybe this is intended to be taken symbolically. Uh, and, And by the way, some premillennials take it symbolically, and that's no threat to their premillennialism, right? Uh, and then some are agnostic, some aren't sure. Um, but as I just as honestly as I could asked myself, 
thousand years, if I interpret the thousand years literally, does that is that absurd? Exegetically? No. When I interpret the thousand years symbolically, does that bring clarity? And I don't have time to go through the examples, but as I read through the amillennial and postmillennial literature saying, here's what it signifies, it doesn't bring clarity. It's it's confusing. Um, it's convoluted. It's B.B. Warfield, seven, the perfect number, plus three, the other perfect number, equals 10 when cubed to the third power indicates completeness. And you go, wow, that's that's not clear. That's confusing. Hey, I'm in theology, not in math. <laughs> right. Uh, and then thirdly, does it fall into an established category of symbolic language? Uh, well, the closest I've come is, is one postmillennial who says, yes, it's hyperbole. It's like, okay, well, yeah, maybe it's hyperbole, except what is hyperbole? An obvious exaggeration for the sake of effect, right? So the number thousand is not a hyperbolic way to express a time period that's 2,000 years and counting right? It's hyperbolic if I say to my kids, I've told you a million times, clean your room. Right. Uh, it, it's not hyperbolic if I say, I've told you two times, clean your room, when I've really told them 20 times. And so, as you know, so I come to the text, I, I ask what's the criteria, and I also ask myself if John had intended to indicate that this time period would be a, a thousand literal years, what else could he have said? Um, you know, and you, you also find as you make your way through, and, and obviously I'm oversimplifying maybe all of these issues, but as you read through Revelation, you see different time indicators that are indefinite. You see in, in chapter 6, verse 11, he refers to for a little while longer. Uh, chapter 12, verse 12, he refers to a short time. Uh, chapter 17, verse 10, he refers to a little while. And then, in fact, right here in this context, in verse 3, he refers to for a short time. And so you have these indefinite temporal expressions in contrast to a very specific time designation, a thousand years. I think the contrast would argue as well for a, a literal thousand year period. Well, this has been very helpful, Matt Wehmeyer. I uh, need to say your name more often so people know uh, who to look up and what gotta, articles gotta, to look up. I got to build my brand, baby. Yeah. Well, hey, I'll be I'll be doing my job linking your articles uh, <laughs> and your books uh, so you can you can go viral. Now. Uh, this is just really helpful. And I think, you know, I think it's super helpful to take a complex and very debated hot topic like this and try to just work through it rationally. And and I want to say too to everyone who's watching or listening that you know this has been just a brief brief overview just very summation kind of uh the detail that matt works through in his books so his articles and books he, he really wants to be thorough accurately represent opposing viewpoints try to represent the best arguments so i definitely recommend uh looking up what uh, matt has done in writing and i i think you know hopefully i speak for many of listeners just really appreciative for you spending time with us uh sharing uh, just some of the research that you've gleaned on these uh, issues, Matt. So thank you very much. Mm. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate I think I mentioned earlier that I love your podcast and I often point my students to issues that we're covering in the classroom. You've devoted an episode maybe to a discussion of it, have pointed pointed my guys to it, and it's been very fruitful, very helpful. So thank you for that. 
Well, appreciate it. And praise the Lord. We're just trying to be as useful as we can. So if anyone wants to find out more about Matt Wehmeyer, you can find him at expositors.org. That's the school that he teaches at. He's also uh, teaching at, is it Grace Emanuel uh, Church there in Jupiter, yeah. Florida? Yeah, Grace Emanuel Bible Church. Grace Emanuel Bible Church there in Jupiter, Florida. So you can look up uh, him and see some of the things that he's done. I'll link, link to his books and the articles that he's written here. And if you're interested more about me, you can visit my website, petergaming.com, The Bible Sojourner, to find out more about the podcast or the blog articles I've written there. You can also find out more about Shepherd's Theological Seminary at shepherds.edu. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.